Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you for joining us on this webinar on the Islamic State. I am joined by four fabulous panelists whose expertise varies from Africa all the way to Southeast Asia. We have two recent authors of a book, The ISIS Reader, along with the third co-author, uh, and Cole Bunzel joining us from California. Just to introduce you briefly uh, to our panelists, uh, we have Cole Bunzel, as I mentioned, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and an editor of the blog Jihadika. He's currently working on a book on the history and doctrine of Wahhabism. Emily Estelle is a research manager for the Critical Threats Project at AEI. She's a senior analyst and leads the Africa research team and coordinates with the Institute for the Study of War on the Salafi Jihadi team. And then Horror Ingram is a senior research fellow with the George Washington University's uh, program on extremism. He's conducted field research in the Middle East, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. And as I mentioned, is a co-author of the ISIS Reader along with Craig Whiteside, uh, who is an associate professor at the Naval War College at the Postgraduate School and is also a fellow at GW's Program on Extremism and at the International Center for Counterterrorism at The Hague. We are going to be discussing how the Islamic State came to be, how we should have understood the organization based on its writings and its statements and what it has been doing on the ground, and then talking a little bit about what's coming next with the Islamic State and whether the United States has actually declared victory against this organization too soon. So the big policy question that we're trying to answer is whether we, the United States and, and frankly the West, should be understanding this group a little bit differently in terms of what victory against it means uh, when we're trying to decide what resources we should be putting against it. So six years ago, uh, around this time, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi delivered his first sermon as caliph uh, in the newly minted Islamic State, we now have a new caliph in place. Uh, he has taken uh, the, the, the robe of Baghdadi, though he is much less visible as a leader, and people talk about that as a vulnerability today. Um, when we're talking about the Islamic State, it actually stretches now across the Muslim world, uh, a far change from what it was in 2013 when the Islamic State was first declared, and even a greater geographic expanse than the Islamic State had at the height of its power in 15 and 16. The challenge that we're facing is the US and the West are looking to draw down on counterterrorism against the Islamic State. And there's a, certainly a shift in the American military posture and the posture of our partners abroad, along with the resources that we're dedicating to this problem. Meanwhile, the Islamic State talks about its victory much different, differently than we do. And when members of the Islamic State talk about victory, they either talk about achieving their, their goals or dying. That's very, very different from, from what the United States says, where we're looking to simply uh, defeat the threat from it, from the organization, uh, and then preserve our resources and move on to the next problem. So I wanted to start actually with, with Cole here and ask him to set the scene for us, because the Islamic State didn't simply arrive in 2013 or 2014 when the rest of the world started paying attention, um, or even in 2003 when al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, began to operate. Um, Cole, you've written at length about the ideological underpinnings of, of the group, the Islamic State, and also of the broader Salafi jihadi movement. Um, 
where does the Islamic State come from and what makes it so different? Hi, Katie, and uh, thanks for having us. Um, so I think there are kind of two ways to look at the history of the Islamic State. Um, there's an organizational level and an ideological level. So organ organizationally, the Islamic State uh, traces its own history, and this is in its own discourse, uh, back to October 2006, when it declared the uh, founding of what was known as the Islamic State of Iraq, Dawlat al-Iraq al-Islamiyya, which was founded by both Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the group at the time that was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, or actually Abu Musab al-Zarqawi had just recently died, um, and a number of other uh, jihadi groups. So when you listen to the speeches of the Islamic State's leaders uh, and you read their, their media outlets, they often talk about their history going back uh, to 2006. And even though a lot of Western analysts and Middle Eastern analysts tended to refer to the Islamic State of Iraq by the, by the name Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, in fact, the group, according to its own messaging, uh, had deemed Al-Qaeda in Iraq to have disappeared beginning in October 2006, having been replaced by the Islamic State of Iraq, which was, um, as it put it, a kind of statehood project. And it also had at the very beginning uh, this anticipation to become the caliphate. It cast itself as the kernel of a future caliphate that would ultimately expand and dominate across the globe. Although that was a very delayed expansion when the Islamic State of Iraq expanded into Syria as they understood it to have happened in uh, April 2013, uh, becoming ISIS, that was sort of the fulfillment of the original idea behind the Islamic State of Iraq. And then when they declared the caliphate in June 2014, a year later, that was the further fulfillment of the original mission to become the caliphate. Uh, so that is sort of uh, one way to look at the history. The other way is uh, with regard to ideology. And in, in my opinion, the, um, the man who was sort of the ideological forebear of the Islamic State was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was the Jordanian jihadi leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, he represented a more severe, a more hardline version of Sunni jihadism, or what we call jihadi Salafism or Salafi jihadism. Uh, it's a movement, this is a, a movement that admits of a range of, of theological and ideological tendencies, and, and he represented the most severe, the most unforgiving version of it. Uh, so for ex example, um, he, he believed that the Shia were not Muslims, whereas the leader of Al-Qaeda told him, no, they actually are Muslims who are to be excused on the basis of ignorance and, and these sort of, of differences. So he, in um, kind of articulating a more um, theologically exclusivist version of jihadism, he hearkened back to the Wahhabi tradition in Saudi Arabia as it was originally uh, kind of marketed in the 18th century, which was very uh, focused on the doctrine of takfir, excommunication, and uh, kind of um, forming a very small tent of Muslims, whereas Al-Qaeda has especially recently been, um, been kind of selling itself as a pan-Islamist group that believes in a big tent jihadism, where just you know, all kinds of groups can be, um, can be admitted, including the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, for instance, whose leaders it has celebrated. That's the main element, I think, of its ideology is the, the theological exclusivism that sets it apart from Al-Qaeda. But there's also, I think you alluded to this, the, the barbarity and the extreme violence of the group. That's also something that differentiates it from Al-Qaeda. Um, and that was a, a method, I believe, that was pioneered by uh, Zarqawi as well, who appeared in, in a video beheading an American journalist. Um, so he, he pioneered a lot of this uh, emphasis on, on gruesome videos, uh, something that Al-Qaeda has dismissed as a kind of Hollywoodization of, of jihad. 
Um, and then thirdly, the a real pillar that has emerged uh, in the ideology of the Islamic State is the Islamic State itself. The idea that it is the caliph, the caliphate, and that all other organizations, jihadi organizations, are are invalid, and that all Muslims are obliged to to pledge fealty or bayah to the group. Um, so you bring all those things together, you have a kind of theological exclusivism and an organizational uh, exclusivism, and that's how you get ISIS. Thank you. And, you know, just to follow up briefly, I think, you know, you know this well, but just for, for the public that's listening, um, you know, when you're talking about the ideology, we, we refer to the Islamic State as being more extreme, more radical uh, than Al-Qaeda, but in framing it that way, it tends to make Al-Qaeda seem more moderate. Um, but from my understanding, especially from, from your work, they are aiming at the same same goals, right? Yeah. When I, if I say that Al-Qaeda is relatively moderate, it's not to say that they're better. Um, they're just it's evil. And in fact, they could be you know, a greater threat by being, say, um, less extreme with regard to theological differences between Sunni and Shia. Um, so these are, you know, terms, and I borrow these terms also from their own discourse. They use words like extremism um, and harajism to, to define and differentiate themselves. So, um, yeah, it's no credit to Al-Qaeda to be a little bit to the left of, of ISIS. Super. So Harar, Cole has laid out kind of the, the ideological underpinnings uh, that have differentiated the Islamic State from Al-Qaeda and from the rest of the Salafi Jihadi movement writ large. Um, and from your research, uh, I know that you know this well, but how did the group start to operationalize its ideology and what made it become so successful so quickly? Um, and then, you know, how are you seeing the group talk about its successes and failures? Sure. Well, um, yeah, again, you know, thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to speak to you all today. Uh, look, there is a, there's a range of ways, I guess, that uh, we can kind of try to answer uh, that, that, that question. Um, and, you know, you speak to different people with different kind of perspectives that they're, they're, they're going to provide a different angle to this. And I guess from, from, from my perspective and from the perspective that we took uh, for the ISIS reader, there's really something to this movement's strategic culture um, and its strategic kind of practice that I think is really important. Taking what are largely abstract kind of ideas and notions in the ideological kind of jurisprudential kind of realm and the kind of things that you're going to need to do on a day-to-day day basis to try to achieve that and kind of bring them together. And this is where that strategic mechanism um, is, is, is really important. And I guess what we've kind of traced and we really tried to trace this um, uh, with, with the book was how this how strategic practice evolved over a period of decades, how that then fueled, fueled a kind of a strategic culture uh, within the movement, that is how individuals and how teams approach these questions. And it kind of gets you kind of stuck into this loop, really, that, that, that the culture helps to inform the practice, but the practice helps to reinform um, inform the strategic culture that, that, that emerges. How do we take these high abstract ideas and with actions and messaging that we engage in to, um, in the short to medium term to try and achieve these larger, these larger goals. And I think that that mix of um, um, strategic culture and practice um, is really important. So kind of broadly what's kind of characterised 
uh, this within the Islamic State? Well, obviously, um, the, the kind of concepts which uh, are really important. There's also this this idea of manhaj, this idea of methodology for, for achieving it that, that, is, that is really central to how it thinks about strategy, um, how it kind of uh, calibrates and steadies the ship through through the tough times and then kind of looks to take advantage um, during those periods, those very fleeting short periods of uh, success. And so what 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 we noticed um, throughout kind of kind of tr- tracking tracking this tracking this movement um, from, from from the 90s is just they are surprisingly frank about how they assess not only their capabilities and capacity but also uh, that of the, their adversaries um, they're surprisingly self-critical um, I say surprising because it's kind of a weird bar to kind of use, but you, you, you may not really expect them to be critical and reflective um, at times, particularly when times are bad, um, as, as, as they are. They demonstrate a relatively methodical approach to assessing risk and threat, but also the environment. Um, different players in this context, how do we use both uh, violence and brutality um, that is timed and decisive, but also how do we use politics, top-down politics? How do we reach out to local leaders, um, local tribal leaders? Um, in the case of, I've seen in, in, in Southeast Asia, leading, um, reaching out to business leaders even. How do we use governance in, in, in a bottom-up kind of sense? Um, how do we exploit uh, vulnerabilities and leaders um, and, and, and those and those levers, but how do we also assess our strengths compared to our adversary's strengths? Um, there also appears to be this real appreciation, not just for um, tactical and operational aims and even strategic aims in a, in, in a strict sense, but also the way that actions and messaging can be calibrated in such a way to change the conditions to contain to, to change the conditions within which the group is seeking to operate and i think this is really important it's really important to understand that they don't kind of have this idea of this pursuit of say perfection in operations or perfection in strategy but rather that we need to despite the rhetoric um but that we need to outcompete our adversaries and so as we track the movement um through through the book you know this this emerges is quite clear. It's hard to avoid when you look at, for example, their internal doctrine and communicators. You look at Zakawi's letter to Al-Qaeda leadership that was captured in January 2004. You know, you see this surprising degree of patience. You see this appreciation either directly from him or him and his inner circle that a window was closing, that there was this opportunity and it needed to be exploited in a timely and decisive fashion. Um, uh, you you see an appreciation in, in that letter for the role that messaging plays to amplify actions, but also to nullify the effects of, of adversaries. Um, Abu Hamza and Muhajir's uh, advice for the leaders um, and commanders uh, and soldiers of the Islamic State, um, a 2007 or eight document, you see there an appreciation for how strategy can't just be this thing that leaders talk about, that command talks about, it's got to go all the way down to your people on the ground. It has to be operationalized in a very tangible, um, real kind of sense, that root-to-fruit kind of idea. 
the Fallujah Memorandum is a great example, really a blueprint document for how, how the movement is to re-emerge again. Um, the speeches by its leaders, um, you know, we feature a lot of these speeches. In those speeches, you, you, you see the way that strategic culture and practice, it isn't just implied and hinted to, it's kind of demonstrated in the way that the group tries to um, inform its audiences, you know, whether it's Baghdadi's declaration um, that the group had moved into um, Syria, whether it's Ad- Ad- Adnani's um, uh, that they live by proof, which essentially defines how the group thinks about success and success and failure, um, or even Baghdadi's final final speech, where you know this was a lot more than just a proof of life video. This was a proof of engagement. It was a proof of, of his awareness. It was a proof of his um, of, of, of his kind of strategic thinking. Now, I don't want this to be misconstrued in any way. You know, uh, these aren't strategic geniuses, as we, we say quite a bit. They're strategic plagiarists. Um, you know, they are far from perfect. They make mistakes. They are hypocrites. And perhaps later on we can talk about how we can be um, much better at, at exploiting those weaknesses. But, but, but I really think it's, it's, it's important for us to get, think about the way that strategic practice and the culture around that practice has evolved over time and how important it's been for, 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 for turning abstract ideas and concepts um, in, 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 into reality. Thank you. I think that's fascinating to think about, um, especially as we're looking at um, you know, what's coming next. So um, Harari, you mentioned this in your remarks just now, but the Fallujah memo, you know, I, I read Craig in your book along with, I guess Charlie Winter was also a co-author with it. Um, but the Fallujah memo is, is a document that really stood out to me as an analyst because when I read through it and having now, uh, you know, I've got 2020 hindsight, right? And you see the Islamic State literally talk about its strategy for the upcoming phased campaign. Uh, and it played it out very, very uh, closely to what it had said it was going to do. Um, so, you know, Craig, I understand that the premise of, of the reader, uh, the ISIS reader, is really to kind of take a step back and try to understand the Islamic State as an organization through its own words, um, the same way that we've seen individuals try to go back and look at Al-Qaeda and what it has been trying to achieve through the statements of its leaders, uh, the three of you tried to pull together the same sort of compendium for the Islamic State. Um, and, you know, the Fallujah memo was written, you're going to correct me, but 2008 or 2009 um, and posted on a, a jihadi forum. And, you know, I hadn't heard of it until I had seen it posted or published in your book. Um, you know, should the United States have taken that sort of framing more seriously? And what does that mean for some of the discussion and statements that we're seeing today that we're so ready to dismiss saying that, you know, the Islamic State or other groups like it don't have the capabilities to achieve that, um, but they've laid out a strategic vision and plan to do so. So the Fluja Memorandum is, is, is a good reflection of, of uh, what Herrera was talking about, about that strategic culture that evolves. And you're right, it's easy now in hindsight to look at this document and say, well, they, you know, they actually had a plan. I'll, I'll start my thoughts on this, on this document and, and the ISIS reader with our perceptions, right? The, the period of 2008 to 13 is really ignored. 
uh, by by a lot of scholars, books on the on the movement's history. It kind of jumped from Zarqawi all the way to you know 2013 and the Caliphate. You know, I'd say with the exception of maybe Brian Fishman, who was writing articles at the time saying, you know, the attack data still says there's a viable insurgency going on in Iraq and it's the Islamic State of Iraq. And it looks like they're at least at some kind of, uh, you know, status quo or, or some kind of status level. You know, my own experiences as a practitioner before I became an academic, I was helping tribal awakening units defeat al-Qaeda in Iraq. Actually, the Islamic State of Iraq, as Cole mentioned, by 2007. And, you know, what I what I realized reflecting back on my own experience is that these were really fractured tribes that were allying with resistance groups that were turning against uh, al-Qaeda, but mostly because they feared its power. It was a really tenuous uh, alliance, so it didn't seem like it had a lot of uh, staying power. And when you look at how the U.S. military looked at these particular tribal awakening units during the surge, uh, it was certainly a means to their own ends, but not necessarily a lot of concern of what would happen to them after the U.S. kind of transitioned out, which it really shortly starts to do, uh, at least in a combat role. Um, So there's a lack of curiosity of what happens with Sunni politics with the Iraqi Islamic Party, which... This Fallujah Memorandum document talks quite a bit about them being a primary rival uh, and someone that the uh, the Islamic State is quite fearful of, uh, as well as the other resistance groups. And, and, you know, our mistakes on analyzing this stuff really do start in 2008, not, not after that. In the interim, I've studied the uh, Islamic State of Iraq's counter Sawa or tribal awakening assassination campaigns, done some research on that to understand what they were trying to do. Uh, They're trying to win, according to the Fallujah memorandum, they're trying to win the tribes over, but at the same time, they have a pretty discriminant assassination campaign against tribal leaders that won't work with them. I've also studied their propaganda campaign to look, well, how do they message the fact that they're attacking Sunni Iraqis more than they are Shia Iraqis during this particular time period? And all of this is laid, the rationale for it is laid out in, in the Fallujah Memorandum. Um, so when you look at, when you look at the, the Fallujah Memorandum, it starts with politics, which is that the Islamic State's got to work harder, do better to uh, kind of unify the Sunni resistance against the Iraqi government, especially many of their rivals who haven't stopped fighting the government. They might've stopped fighting the coalition, but they, they, weren't, they weren't ready to really um, you know, join the government in any fashion. And that, that space there, which you could argue could still exist today, uh, is where the Islamic State was able to make a lot of headway in Iraq. Um, and even though they are more successful in Syria, uh, in 2013, it's it's that kind of fools people to think that, you know, the group didn't exist in Iraq and they went to Syria and they got strong and then they came back to Iraq, which I don't. The attack data, the activities, the, the Fallujah Memorandum, all of these documents kind of triangulate to tell us that there's a picture out there that we still really as researchers and analysts should should pay more attention to really, really get back into it. It's this it's this focus on politics and to me, it's not even simply the sectarian as- aspects or angles, but it's it's also uh, the fact of what is the political objective of the Islamic State. It's to carve out a separatist state, and there are there's a lot of support for that from certain Iraqis who are not interested in reconciling with the government, 
Uh, and that's something we, we need to pay attention today. And, and documents like Fallujah Memorandum can help us with that. So just to, to circle back on that, you know, the, we are talking at AI, which is a public policy institute. And, you know, I think what I'm hearing from you is that the Islamic State recognized the friction between um, some of the military actions the United States was taking and the political gaps that we had. But, um, and this tracks a little bit with our policy that we're, we're in there and assisting militarily with security forces and security assistance. Um, but the local politics, the regional politics, you know, the United States has been very hands-off um, because it's fundamentally not our problem. Um, is that problematic in how the U.S. is framing it? Should we be more involved? Should we um, be trying to tie our security assistance much more to a political end state or at least conditions? You know, I, I think it's a, it's a serial problem. Uh, from a strategic culture perspective, it's a serial problem of the United States that we we focus not overly on the military aspect. These are military problems. But then once we've used our substantial power to create opportunity for something else to happen that's not militarily, uh, we really don't have uh, an understanding of how that operates or that it's even, or who should be doing that. And so until we figure that out, and I, you know, it goes back to even larger issues, larger than jihadism, this, the nature of this strategic dilemma the United States has, which is we don't want to focus a lot of our power on main, you know, containing these, these particular groups. We want to focus them on great power competition. But if we don't, if we don't learn from this ex- experience with dealing with really smaller threats, um, we're going to have a lot of trouble when we try to work with friendly countries or partners that are looking for U.S. military assistance or security assistance or training. And we're oblivious to the politics of why they might want it or what it will do for them. And, and that, it's going to apply to great power competition, just like it does in how do we prevent yet another iteration of the Islamic State. So I think, I think you're exactly right. Super. So that leads me to, to, to Emily, whose research focuses on Africa. And when the Islamic State's predecessor, al-Qaeda in Iraq, was defeated back in 2007, 8-9 timeframe, uh, there wasn't really another part of it that was strong. Um, but this time around, when uh, the United States and its partners, uh, particularly the Iraqis and then the, um, the Syrian Defense Forces and the Kurds, uh, defeated the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, the Islamic State had branches elsewhere, and the strongest ones were in Africa. And so we saw a shift from, from both the Islamic State in terms of its emphasis on its African branches and also, frankly, um, from the rest of the world as we're looking to defeat the Islamic State and looking at the African branches. Um, how did the Islamic State discuss the African theaters before 2018, 2019, when it was defeated? And then how is it talking about them now? What is it doing now inside of Africa? Thanks, Katie. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the, uh, the Africa perspective on the Islamic State. And I think you know, Africa and the other more external theaters that outside of Iraq and Syria can be an interesting prism for looking at you know, how ISIS's strategic culture plays out in different contexts, how things change as you get further away from the core. One useful way to look at ISIS in Africa is to think about its relationship to ISIS's overarching goals around legitimacy and and resilience. Africa has been a place for ISIS to demonstrate the effectiveness and the attractiveness of its brand within the Salafi Jihadi movement. 
uh, to try and build some resilience against its losses elsewhere and also to challenge Al-Qaeda. So referring back to what Cole talked about a bit, the uh, relationship between ISIS and Al-Qaeda um, in competition to be the vanguard of the global Salafi jihadi movement. So going back before 2018, 2019, uh, when ISIS was reaching its peak, at least in this iteration of ISIS, so looking at 2014, um, you started to see the presence in Africa as um, ISIS was trying to move from, from being focused in Iraq and Syria to being more global. So after the announcement of the caliphate in the middle of 2014, and then to the end of that year, and late 2014 was when ISIS started to accept the pledges uh, of Bayat from external branches. So a few of those were, were in Africa and then they kind of added some over the years since then. There is a spectrum of investment, you know, how much ISIS Corps was interested in, in giving a lot of resources or leadership or guidance to these branches. At that point, so 2014 through 2016, uh, the highest level of investment went to the branch in Libya, which became the group's more famous African branch at that time. Um, so taking us back to, to 2015, ISIS was controlling a city in Libya that they marketed as the third capital of the caliphate alongside Raqqa and Mosul. So that was a big elevation for uh, one of their peripheral branches. And it was discussed. So the Libyan city of Sirte that ISIS controlled at the time was discussed as a fallback option for potential loss of, of Mosul or of Raqqa. At the time, and, and especially in hindsight, that was an overstatement of how realistic it was that the ISIS project in Iraq and Syria could really fall back to Libya for reasons of, of distance and different conditions and, and all sorts of things. But the idea of a fallback option was rendered moot by end of 2016 when ISIS lost the, the city in Libya. Um, and since then, there's been a decreased emphasis in ISIS media on, on Libya, which had been a focus. Um, broadening out a little bit, I also look at, at Africa as a theater for competition between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So if you look at where ISIS established affiliates, it naturally followed from where there was already a Salafi Jihadi presence. And they had a mixed record of success with trying to build up affiliates or win defections from Al-Qaeda groups. One challenge that ISIS has faced in, in the African space is that the stronger of the Al-Qaeda affiliates, so Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM in North and West Africa, and Al-Shabaab in Somalia, were resistant to changing teams, essentially. So um, ISIS was able to get some splinter groups on, onto its side, but didn't kind of move the, the bigger affiliates over. Even with that limitation, though, ISIS was able to kind of proliferate um, affiliates across Africa that really amplified its, its appearance of strength at the time. Playing the clock forward a couple years, it's, it's interesting to see you know, which of those affiliates have withered and which have, have strengthened. So for example, the, the Algerian branch has almost stopped all activity where the branch in the Sahel in Mali has gotten increasingly active. So some of the seeds that, that ISIS planted have, have flourished and others have not. Looking at the situation 2018 to now, ISIS has started to use its African branches as a counterweight to its losses elsewhere um, and has also started to renew, even just in the last couple of months, uh, an emphasis on competing with Al-Qaeda uh, in Africa. So on the first point, there's a lot of media production coming out of ISIS's African branches, especially the West African branches that are, are very active. It's interesting to see it, 
actually the, the ISIS reader book talks about Baghdadi's speech uh, in April 2019, when he actually spoke in a fair bit of detail about the ISIS leader in the Sahel and about the Libya group. Um, and he was demonstrating that he was still connected and, and leading actively, but that was also a big elevation for how much you hear about those groups in ISIS media. African affiliates of ISIS have continued to participate in coordinated media campaigns. So this past Ramadan, they were joining in a campaign called the Battle of Attrition that ISIS claimed, has claimed for the last few years. Um, and last summer, ISIS announced a new province in Africa, the Central Africa province, which includes fighters in Mozambique and the DRC, which was uh, a way of taking local groups that had, had pledged and, and using them to show continued expansion, remaining and expansion on, on ISIS's part. Uh, I can, I might talk more about Mozambique later, but it's an interesting case where um, there's an ISIS affiliate that's actually following uh, what appears to be some of the group's older methodology and, and appears to be having some success starting to contest control of, of cities and towns. The other major piece to watch right now is the fighting between ISIS and Al-Qaeda militants, Al-Qaeda-linked militants in the Sahel. Um, so there's the AQIM affiliate, there's the ISIS affiliate. They've cooperated in the past and have actually been pretty closely related, but the last several months, there's been a lot of sustained fighting between those groups, and that's reflected in ISIS media too. So a recent statement from the, uh, the ISIS spokesman focused on uh, revenge against Al-Qaeda in, in Mali. And you know, the reasons for that range from local territorial disagreements to the bigger issue of ISIS and Al-Qaeda's competition. So um, the Al-Qaeda group in that area is trying to pursue a model that Al-Qaeda is pursuing elsewhere, in part um, mimicking the Taliban deal in Afghanistan. That's a problem for ISIS if, you know, as its model appears to be declining with the loss of the territorial caliphate, uh, if the Al-Qaeda model is rising. And so Africa is one place where that dynamic is playing out, leading to more emphasis on ISIS's part uh, on Africa than we had seen previously. At the same time, uh, some of the ISIS groups in West Africa are also starting to adopt more of the you know, brutality in attacks and in media that's associated with ISIS, as far as ISIS being kind of the more extreme, uh, you know, among the extremist groups. Um, so that theater of West Africa is going to continue to be important among the different places where ISIS and Al-Qaeda can compete as they enter kind of the next phase of leadership of the global Salafi Jihadi movement. Thanks. So her, I, I know your research has been in Southeast Asia as well. And when the Islamic State took over um, Mindanao and Philippines, that was front page news, but now I don't hear about it at all. Um, are you seeing Islamic State attention to its branches out in Southeast Asia? Um, or you know, what, what are you seeing? Is the Islamic State actually declining globally? Or is it just in Iraq and Syria where we've seen the pressure militarily where it's declined? Yeah, well, so so many of the dynamics that Emily has kind of spoken about there, you know, um, I've, I've, I've seen kind of uh, to varying degrees um, over in um, Southeast Asia and the Philippines. So, and in, in the Philippines in particular, uh, where I spend most of my time, I mean, until COVID, I was kind of travelling there every every six uh, or so. And um, just a, 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 for a little bit of background, um, I don't publish it all on the work that I do over there, and um, but most of my work is focused on capacity building, um, uh, working in, in communities. So I've been travelling there since 2017, spent a lot of time in places like um, Iligan and Maui, over in Zamboanga, 
Uh, these are these three really crucial channels of pro-Islamic state group activity in Mindanao. And so you have through that Sulu archipelago, um, the, that kind of the, those who kind of were aligned with the ASG, the SAF group, you have the BIF in Maguindanao, and then you have the kind of the Dawa in the uh, Lanao del Sur. And the reason I provide that background is because from a distance, people kind of saw Marawi and they saw it as ISIS central reaching out into, in, in, into Asia. That was part of this global expansion. You know, there's almost this imperial power that was kind of moving around the world. The perspective that I have a lot of, of a lot of these dynamics is very much from a local perspective, um, just given the time that I've um, spent there. And from a local perspective, uh, this was very much seen as a kind of a locally generated bottom-up exploitation of something that was going on um, over there, that the Mount Hapalon were taking advantage of um, and it continues an ongoing kind of peace process uh, in Mindanao, that these were these young upstarts trying to um, offer an alternative to the frankly, very elderly uh, leadership of the old revolutionary groups um, over that way, that they were exploiting um, organisational fractures, that those old allegiances and pledges to to AQ, for example, in that Sulu archipelago, that this was a way for young up-and-comers to kind of distinguish themselves from from that older school. And so from the locals' perspective, it was seen very much as kind of a, a, a locally generated phenomenon that was that was actually exploiting um, larger um, um, transnational kind of dynamics. Now, the reason why I think this is so important is because the way that we uh, understand this phenomenon and the way that we think about um, how to support our, um, our partners in different regions has to reflect that reality. It, it, it's, it's, it has to acknowledge um, these local dynamics um, and kind of see that there is a bottom-up and a top-down um, interplay that, that, that's really important here. Moving forward, uh, this is a relatively new issue for the Islamic State to deal with, that is managing its transnational kind of uh, network. And it's new for Islamic State and happens to be new for strategic policy and academic thinkers as well. And I suspect that um, that there are a lot of kind of errors and missteps in the way that um, the field had thought about uh, Al-Qaeda in this regard. And I would hope that we can kind of reflect on some of those lessons, some of the things that I think were misdirected and, and, and not just kind of um, lazily apply the AQ template to what ISIS is trying to do in a transnational sense, but at the same time, not necessarily take ISIS history and use that as a template for how it is going to um, um, tr- tr- try to manage this, 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 this transnational network. Given where the group is at, given the problems that it, it has had, um, uh, it, its global network, I, it, 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 it gives it a lot of opportunities, but there is a lot of risks. And from a policy strategy perspective, we've got to work out ways to maximise those risks and to undermine those opportunities for it and not see it necessarily as a one-way kind of street. Thank you. Cole, as we're looking at the Islamic State going global and, and developing much more local roots, 
there inevitably introduces the problem of the ideology and ideological purity, if you will. Um, you wrote recently about how some of the ideo ideological challenges uh, within the group actually weakened it. Um, so I'm wondering whether if you're looking ahead, um, how is the Islamic State going to deal with you know, preserving its own ideological standing as it expands into a broader movement, both globally and deeper into populations? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, I, the way I see it, the Islamic State's actually become more kind of ideologically purist uh, than it has been uh, in the past. I think we, you talked to me over email about um, the, the period of, of uncertainty and turmoil from sort of 2007 to 2011, having radicalized uh, the group ideologically. And I think that's very much true. And when the, uh, when the split came with Al Qaeda in 2013, 2014, I think a lot of that just sort of opened the floodgates to, uh, to ideological um, extremism. So you saw for the first time um, the Islamic State uh, declaring that the Taliban was a group of unbelievers, where before it had been uh, something that was celebrated as a good uh, jihadi movement, even by Zarqawi, by the way. So there are differences even between uh, ISIS kind of 2014, 2013 onwards and Zarqawi. It's become more extreme. And beginning in 2016, 2017, uh, when the Islamic State began to kind of decline territorially in Iraq and Syria, I think that that exacerbated a lot of internal tensions in the group. And one of those had to do with ideology, and particularly this doctrine of tekfir or excommunication, which stipulates that uh, true believers uh, must, as a rule, pronounce tekfir on those considered unbelievers, and that those who fail to do so are themselves to be pronounced uh, as unbelievers, um, which it sounds a lot better in Arabic, I, I promise. Um, so uh, basically, the scholarly class in the Islamic State tried to <clears throat> introduce a more nuanced position on this so that people like Ayman Zawahiri, leader of Al-Qaeda, um, could be understood as Muslims and those failing to pronounce tekfir on Zawahiri were not themselves to be labeled unbelievers. Um, what happened though eventually is that um, though there was a kind of back and forth and a push in and pull, the, the scholars lost and they were either killed or they left the group uh, of their own volition and they try to make some noise, but ultimately they're not uh, that, I think, influential today in the group. Uh, so the, the people who are left, the remnant in the Islamic state are very much the most ideologically extreme. Uh, and that probably will have ramifications for, for the future of, of the movement. Um, I'm not exactly sure how. Uh, it would seem that if it's going to appeal less broadly, it's going to appear more narrowly to the most extreme type of Salafi Muslim uh, in the world, that that would kind of hurt its appeal. On the other hand, um, I see a lot of um, kind of whispering in the, in the jihadi world that ISIS is actually becoming more popular and that groups like Al-Qaeda are fading in popularity. And so kind of the most extreme version of jihadism is, is on the up and up. So I, I, I don't see um, any reason to be, um, to be happy about that, um, but it, it will possibly limit its appeal among a kind of more nuanced, thoughtful, potential recruit. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.